Welcome to the third episode of the Straight to the Point podcast. I'm your host, Isaac Lindenberger, and today I am interviewing Jason Wright and Abraham Alamad. Jason was formerly against vaccines. However, he came around to understanding more about them when he took it upon himself to do some unbiased and independent research on the subject. Abraham is a published scientist who is an expert on the blood-brain barrier, who will explain why vaccines can't cross this protective membrane, and how it works to protect the most important organ in the body from anything a vaccine could ever affect it with. So please welcome Jason Wright and Abraham Alamad. By the way, this podcast is accompanied by many visuals in the video format. If you want to find those, they're at our website at straighttothepointshow.com or sttpshow.com. You can also find us at our YouTube channel at Straight to the Point, which is linked on our website. Welcome to the podcast, Jason. It's a pleasure to have you. So can you tell us about your experience with the science of vaccines? I know it's an interesting one for you. Yeah, because what is it? At first, like um, I like I said, I'm online. I used to be, what is it, an anti-vaxxer. I pretty much was one for about five years from the ending of 2013 to like the beginning of 2019. So like that's pretty much how long it lasted. So like I'm familiar with like all of the rhetoric. And like I um I studied um what is it uh Larry Cook I've heard <laughs> um, most of the sentiment from uh Suzanne Humphreys and mm-hmm. uh, Andrew Involved Wakefield yeah as well as Del Big Tree and at first like when I um heard it like I pretty much um instead of taking it with a grain of salt like jumped on it like uh, I guess uh, most people that agree with them uh, do so that's kind of how I became familiar with it. And it wasn't until like um, five years ago, almost that, um, what is it? I met um, Carlos Morales actually at uh, Forkfest. And then Ah, the um, libertarian event, right? Yeah. Yeah. In uh, New Hampshire, in Lancaster, New Hampshire. Wonderful event. That was a lot of fun. And then um, what happened was we met up again at Liberty Fest NYC. um, What is it? A couple of months after, what is it? uh, Forkfest. And then uh, we were talking about some things, and all that happened was, I remember at the time, I was reading a book by Bonnie Hari, and I told him that. And what happened was, he implicitly told me, well, not even implicitly, but he bluntly told me that she's pretty much crazy, and here's why. And he gave very good arguments for why, and that kind of put me on the spot. And then, like, I kind of recognized, like, at that moment, I had to reconsider some things to, like, I was probably taking for granted. And then it wasn't until about fast forward till April of 2016, um, when I went to the Free Your Mind conference for the first time, there was a guy there speaking. And now keep in mind, that was a conference that was held in, um, what is it, um, Langhorn, uh, Philadelphia. It had some great people and had some uh, people are probably... A little bit crazy, but um, there was one speaker there that was promoting something uh, called, what is it, um, MMS. Um, he was giving a whole talk on, like, biological warfare and stuff, but he brought up something uh, called MMS and started talking about uh, Jim Humble and how uh, this uh, stuff um, pretty much can uh, cure anything. And he was using arguments, oh, because it's not FDA approved, therefore it's probably um automatically safe and he was using other fallacious um arguments to try to promote it but like i didn't know what it was at first like that was the first time i've ever heard of it and um he was going into more depth like he was explaining it's called miracle uh, uh miracle mineral um solution it used to be called miracle um mineral mm. um supplement but it had to be changed to miracle uh mineral solution for legal reasons and uh, what it pretty much is, it's um, a solution of sodium chloride. And what you have to do is you have to uh, mix sodium chloride and water 
And what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to mix it with, um, what is it? Uh, something like citric acid. So you can pretty much like blend up orange juice or lemons and then just pretty much mix it in and you're supposed to drink it. But what they don't tell you is that it's bleach because what it does is it, when you mix citric acid with sodium chloride, it converts to chlorine dioxide. And I just find it um, a little bit, um, what is it? A little bit crazy that the people promoting it um, pretty much deny that it's bleach. They pretty much uh, act like it's the solution that's pretty much like a panacea that can pretty much deal with anything. Now, that would be great. I wish there was a panacea that could deal with anything because it would just make life a hell of a lot easier. But unfortunately, things are not that simple. Life is way more complex than that. And um, yeah, because what happened was after um, listening to that guy talk, what happened was I went online to try to look for this stuff and I wound up um, buying, um, what is it, a uh, solution of it. And it's pretty much like a sodium chloride solution. It has, what is it, Miracle right. Medical uh, Solution written on it. You can literally go online and like find this stuff and they're able to get around it because Such of uh, certain name. legal issues. Yeah, yeah the name it, it is definitely like, is. raises quite a bit of suspicion for me. <laughs> Sounds like Alex Jones' nano silver toothpaste, which cures COVID. Nano yeah, silver right? toothpaste, dude. Yeah, that sounds realistic. So, so you ended up looking into this stuff and um, finding out it wasn't legit, pretty much. You know, yeah, bleach, expecting it to help. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, so I glad you asked. Excellent question. So. I purchased it online, this um, solution that had it written on it, Miracle uh, Mineral Solution. And what happened was I pretty much took a little bit of it and just poured it into water. And at first it didn't smell anything. I'm like, like what the hell is this stuff? And then um, <laughs> I added a little bit more and I started to notice something very um, unusual was that it smelled like chlorine. And I'm like, am I smelling something like that like smells like pool water or something like yeah and then no it's just like thirty dollars like the solution that you buy online i forget how much it costs because keep in mind this was like four years ago right. so um it, might, it was probably like around yeah 20 maybe like 15 30 bucks but um immediately i did not drink that because like that's the first um, red flag <laughs> right there just reeks of chlorine like what yeah. the fuck excuse my language but like that's how i felt like okay something's wrong here so i go online and i'm trying to look up more information on the stuff okay is there anything critical about the stuff and like i came across the same stuff that the guy was promoting this guy named chim humble it's part of this cult name uh, genesis 2 it's pretty much the guy that started it but then eventually i came across miles power finally on accident i came across this um british chemist he makes all these videos pretty much debunking different kinds of like pseudoscience and quackery. And he mm -hmm. made like several different videos talking about the stuff. And that's how I completely found out on accident. Like the, the stuff is not only bunk, but I also discovered completely on accident that, you know, was being taken for a ride. And it led me to discover other things as I started watching his other videos. They're excellent. Mm -hmm. um, definitely recommend Miles Power to anybody that's not familiar with them. So did he talk about vaccines as well? And that's where you came across more va accurate vaccine information too? Yeah, he definitely does talk about vaccines. He definitely has in his earlier videos. So like, um, he definitely does talk about that too. Um, that's kind of how I started um, questioning it a little bit. But I started to get more interested in vaccinations once my friend Jim Jesus started becoming a uh, once he started to become vocal about it, like last year, um, he mm. made a video titled, um, what is it, uh, Questioning the Nap as a Libertarian. And in the video, he's pretty much, he gave his uh, brief position on vaccines. And I'm like, okay, now I have to really, really question my position because like that was something I didn't change my mind on yet. But what was important was what happened four years previously to get exposed to, you know, there is such a thing as quackery and pseudoscience and it still right. is prevalent today. And, and then finally getting exposed to like one of my good friends who I met and I'm familiar with Jim Jesus because I met him at 
what is it, Jack Fest four years ago almost. So like I got to meet him in person and got to talk to him and pretty much like, you know, just have fun with him on a bonfire and just talk about cool shit. So like that's kind of how I met him and then I went online and like I what is it, found his YouTube channel on accident and I found his website and I started following him ever since. Like he too, he's like from the skeptic community, so he'll like make videos critiquing people within the liberty movement like he'll do that kind of stuff and it's pretty cool and but nice. like when he made that video he gave his brief position on vaccinations and like because i know this is someone like that definitely is smart like i definitely wanted to take a step back and like reconsider my position because still like at that time like i still consider myself i still like looking back like how i would today like for that time, I was still an anti-vaxxer. So I'm like, okay, I need to reconsider my position. And that's when I started going online. Like, And then that's when I got exposed to, what is it, um, other people like Bob the Science Guy, um, who also makes a lot of videos um, going over flat earth stuff. And then I discovered Jeff Holiday, who has like a whole series on uh, the Vax documentary that I also think came Ooh. out four years ago. Yeah, he did like a whole uh, series on it. I think he did like seven videos over wow. it. They're all great. Yeah, yep, that sounds so, like, awesome. That's kind of similar to my story too, because you were in the liberty movement and you were questioning vaccines, but then you realized pseudoscience was a thing. And then when you realized that vaccines were potentially a part of that, it started to kind of open your mind up a little bit. And I think part of the problem is people are afraid that if they change their mind, they'll appear that they're not consistent. But personally, I think if, you, if you're someone who changes your mind in response to new and better evidence, that's a sign of intelligence, right? That's something I want to see in someone. I think you should be more willing to change your mind if it's a circumstance like that. So did you experience any of that yourself? Did you feel like you didn't want to change your mind because you'd be going back on, you know, things that you tried to be consistent in? Did you, did you feel any of that yourself? Um, there definitely was uh, times where... I, I felt like I like I probably would feel like that, like maybe like, OK, you're not being consistent because you're stepping back too much, but not too much, because like I've learned from what is it? Good friends of mine that it's very important to uh, take a step back and to definitely change your minds. Um, right. It's because like if you are presented with information that if gets proven to be unequivocal, and you still refuse, I think that's a sign of, you know, being disingenuous and, you yeah. know, just not really being true. Yeah, not yeah. being honest with yourself. And even if you don't know it, it is being closed minded. So so just to wrap things up with this, um, it it's Bob the science guy, actually, right? Not Bill the science guy. Yeah, it's not Bob the science guy. Right. Right. Not to be right. confused with Bill Nye, the science guy, who I right. do have some issues with. But yes, Bob, the science yes. guy. Yeah. So just to uh, to end your discussion, I'm really glad you brought this up. Have you ever heard of any rumors about the blood brain barrier in vaccines? Because I want to get into that next. And this will hopefully be an example of preconceived notions being proved wrong with better evidence. If, you know, people believed any of the things we're going to cover today. So that should be pretty thorough. But have you heard any of that before? I have briefly, like, I've heard, a, like, a lot of stuff. Like, I have heard people talk about, like, the adjuvants in vaccines. Like, I've heard that, like, just to infinity and beyond. I've heard that so much. But very recently, I have heard of, like, the blood-brain barrier stuff. Like, I got exposed to that because, what is it, Jeff Holiday produced a video, like, answering, uh, what is it, Jordan's uh, Sather's Five Reasons Not to Vaccinate. And ah, he did... He did talk about the blood-brain barrier, and I did spend what is it? Um, I did spend time after watching that video, like trying to do some research on the the blood-brain barrier. And what's amazing is, um, I didn't even know this, but like, um, what is it? Um, with and the blood-brain barrier, like, if you look in your spinal tissue, like, is very like low amounts of. It could be lower amounts of protein than you would measure like throughout your body. So people love to use the, um, the excuse like, well, how can um, your blood brain barrier keep out, you know, things that are very like, you know, very small. 
that you couldn't probably see like visually with your eyes, which is a good question. But like what I didn't know either was that your blood brain barrier can keep out um, um, a lot of um, a lot of amounts of uh, protein as well as um, germs and viruses. Yeah, um, that's so like, like part of the point of it. Right. So actually, we have a yeah. we have an expert on the blood brain barrier who are about to bring on screen. So. I'm curious if he says that what you just said is right, but I don't know. We'll find out. I'll I'll leave it to him. But Jason, yeah, definitely, I could be wrong about something. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll find out, right? We'll see if we change our minds in light of new and better evidence. So, thank you for sharing that, Jason. And I appreciate all your thoughts on Facebook and all that stuff. We can find you on your Facebook, right? You, yeah, you can find Jason me on Wright. Facebook. Yeah, you can find me on uh, Facebook, Jason Wright. Um, all you really have to do is just look for the. The photo of uh what is it the facebook app getting thrown in the trash like it's, yeah. not, it's, it's that simple yeah yep that's it yep that's that's your profile picture on facebook too which is hilarious all right jason well thank, thank you so you. much for your time and um look forward to talking to you in the future you too thank you so much for giving me the opportunity yeah no problem man see ya okay Peace. so now we have abraham coming on here we go hey hey how are you I'm doing good. Thank you. Awesome. Good to hear. Good to hear. So Thank we you. got a little bit into the blood brain barrier before you came on. So mm -hmm. real quick before we get started, did what he say sound accurate? Sound kind of close to the money? To be honest, I didn't hear anything about, you know, <laughs> I mean, I oh. didn't hear him. Yes. Uh, so if he... you can like give me like a summary of what Jason have said, you know, so I, I can maybe try to ask to wrap up. He's, he said that there's a thought that small viruses, very small particles that you can't see with your eyes, you know, they should be able to pass the blood-brain barrier, right? But mm -hmm. it's not exactly how it works. It can stop small particles. Exactly, that. yes. Mm -hmm. And um, this is something, you know, that we have, I mean, um, in the field, is one side of the field is about understanding what is the blood-brain barrier and how it works and what's happened during disease. And another part of our field is what we call drug deliveries. Like, try to find a way to give drugs and medications across the brain barrier to treat neurological disorders. You know, one thing I can think about is brain tumors. And what is very interesting, you know, is like when I hear about nanoparticles like magically crossing the brain barrier, it makes me laugh and perplexes because it makes me laugh because I know like dozens of like researchers in my field, they have been struggling for decades to find a Trojan horse they can use to like, you know, like, um, uh, I would say, deceive a brain barrier and find a way to deliver a cargo from one side to another. And wow. um, it was like maybe two weeks ago, you know, we have now a weekly seminar uh, organized by different people in the field. And we have um, Professor Margareta Hamalund from Uppsala University in Sweden. She's interested about trying to deliver drugs across the brain barrier. And one thing she tried was to work on nanoparticles as a way to deliver. Um, her conclusion was that there is nothing really changes. You try to give your drugs naked, so without the nanoparticles, a very small amount crosses. Now, if you try to like make your drug inside these particles and deliver it, there was nothing really much changed, you know, in terms of like a crossing. And yes, I mean, people have tried different formulations, different way to make nanoparticles. And so far, there is no very good candidates. That is very funny. So they, they're, they're actually trying to find something that can pass the blood-brain barrier easily to deliver something exactly, into the brain exactly, for yes, brain yes. science, and they can't. And so they say that we have this for vaccines, and it definitely works, and it's not even in the field of brain science yet. It's like uh, exactly, something yes. we want to have, but we don't have yet. That's very it, interesting. Exactly, yes. You know, I mean, because I would like to know, you know, I, I mean, there are like some really serious neurological disease outside that really needs a cure or needs something to like deliver um, chemotherapies. Think, I think about brain tumors, like glioblastoma multiform. This is really a nasty one. I mean, patients, they usually get diagnosed by the age of like 50 to 60s. And there's nothing really much you can do about, you know, I mean, you have radiotherapy, you have surgery to try to remove a tumor. You have only one drug that seems to work, but is not working that great. It's like timozolomide. And when we talk about here all this treatment together, we have about a life expectancy of maybe 18 months. So to give you an idea, less than 5% of the patients that have glioblastoma multiform survive after five years. Mm. I'm not even talking about patients that have uh, 
brain metastasis from like breast cancer or melanoma or from skin cancer. The numbers are even like worse, you know, I mean, like we're talking about like six months. This is really dramatic, you know, and I think even worse about that is like, as a father, is like when you have babies or children that have uh, primary tumors like medulloblastoma, you have different types and you have, for example, you have a group C and D that have a very aggressive type of tumors, like for example, like diffuse intrapontine um, glioma. This one, you have nothing. I mean, basically you say to your parents, I'm sorry, we have no nothing. We can try surgery. If we can, we can try to do like radiation therapy, but there's nothing much we can do for your kids. And this is like really, really, I, mean, I would say like um, angering me because you know, on one hand, we have really people like struggling to find ways to treat these patients. On, on the other hand, we have some voices that say that we can like deliver things like so easy because like, of the barrier. Right, even though it's so difficult and we have huge oh, incentives yes. to actually figure out a way to do this and we haven't yet. So Exactly, so yes, yeah. Before we go on into some of the more specific myths that I want to debunk related to the blood-brain barrier and vaccines, what are some of your credentials and research history? What got you interested in vaccines? Um, you know, what's that oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, sure. So my I have like um, bachelor degrees in biochemistry, you know, and I make my way through. Um, I was like really interested about like uh, the action of drugs, you know. So I went into like a master degree in pharmacology, and I was. Uh, touching a bit what you call like pharmacokinetics. So this is a field that you want to try to understand what's happened to a drug when it enters your body, how the body processes it, why it goes into your body, and how it gets uh, metabolized and eliminated. And then I joined um, um, the University of Zurich in Switzerland when I decided to like further investigate, you know, like how drug I get transported. And I was fascinated by this thing called the Bremen Bayer. And this is how I ended up doing my PhD in Bremen Bayer research. And um, I tried using um, cells coming from rats to try to reproduce like 3D structures. So to try to understand how the cells are like coming together, you know? So if you take them aside on how they are like organizing together into this uh, uh, structures, I like, I don't know if we can like show one of the slides I have, sure. you know, so sure, people sure. can understand, you know, because it's, it may be hard to conceptualize what I'm talking about, you know? Um, let's see if we can bring one sure. Side. Let's see. So you mean this side here? Yes, and up. I think number two. Yes, if we can go to number two, that would be great. Yes. So this is what we have, you know, in the brain. Um, so we can see on the left panel we have a blood vessel. So you can see this like blue, I would say tentacles or feet. This is what you call the astrocyte and feet processes. So they come, and the goal is to like wrap around these blood vessels. And this secrete factors that makes the endothelial cells, the cell lining the inside. You can see the red blood cells, you can see the cells lining around. This is what you call the blood barrier, basically. So they are here on that really make tight junctions to really stop anything crossing from the blood side to the brain side. And here, if you want to understand what's happening during disease, you have to find a way to make a simple environment. You know, something can like easily interact and work with. This is what you call like models. And one model I have been working is like what you call in vitro models, models we call like petri dishes models, where you have cells growing in a dish. And my goal was to understand what's happened, how the cells are interacting together, and what's happened when you have hypoxic injury. So hypoxic injury is like something that normally you would like experience when you go to high altitude, or if you have an ischemic stroke or a cardiac arrest. And we know that hypoxia opens the brain barrier, you know? So I try to understand during my physics what's happened and how their cells are interacting together. And right. from there, I have been then continuing on my research on brain barrier, like getting, getting more term, uh, attractions. I have been, after my PhD, I have completed like a postdoc um, at a and for like an hour and a half when I try to understand how the extracellular matrix is basically like a protein membrane uh, surrounding the vasculature uh, act and like help to like uh, after stroke as a recovery. And later on, I have done a second postdoc at the Wisconsin where I try to use patient-derived stem cells to like do like, um, uh, a model of a brain barrier. And this was very interesting because we could, uh, we have started by then, try to understand what's happened to like some patient have a disease and so try to see what's going wrong with the brain barrier. Awesome. Um, wow, so you have quite yeah. the history in this research. Field. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I mean, I'm still like a, bit, a small fish, you know, we have like more of a, a rock star in the field that have like, okay. like years. All the best experts say they're not the best experts, though. I'm just going to throw yeah, that exactly, out there. Yeah. So that's, I'm going to remind that's you, you know, and you have and you have your 
peers around you, you know, that you're not an expert. You know what I mean? Right. This so is you're like at that part of the Dunning-Kruger where you know so much, you know how little you know. <laughs> exactly, yes. You know, yeah. and so I'm like really careful about, you know, when I'm stating something in, let's say, in my research studies, I, I always like being very careful on like formulating things because I'm always afraid that someone will come and review and say, here you are being too bold on like making the statement. I would downplay it or this is, your data is not supporting what you have been saying here. I will be very careful about formulating this. Right. You don't just throw out things that make sense or you just heard and think sound true because they fit into your, your biases of the world and how you exactly see it. Exactly, yes. You're mm -hmm. like, this needs to be true if I'm going to say it because this is my field of expertise. So this is why I wanted to have you on to ask you some of these important questions when it comes to the blood-brain barrier and vaccines. And I think the most important one that's the most serious is polysorbate 80. So yeah. what what's the deal? with polysorbate 80. I mean, let's, I'll pull up the slide that you gave, but I'd love to hear, yeah. hear it from mm -hmm. you. Yeah. So, um, this is like, you know, it, it goes in the vein of like finding ways to deliver drugs. You know, like I said, you know, we have like brain tumors and I have nothing really to give to have like chemotherapy to cross the brain barrier. You know? So basically we are like in the same situation where right now with like COVID-19, we try to throw every little thing we can find on it and find something to operate. And the Polysorbat 80 comes out in 1984. There's a paper I have like cited um, uh, from 1984, like neuro, uh, Journal of Neurosurgery, that have tried to see how can we improve the delivery of etoposide. So etoposide is a drug that is known to kill tumors, like uh, cancer cells. And so the author thought that, you know, maybe if we can find a way to improve the delivery of this drug into the brain, we can maybe try to find a way to treat brain tumors. So they did in what was to like take some mice and like directly inject the drug by itself or the drug mixed with polysorbate 80. And so they found out that if you give enough of the drug directly injected in your like uh, carotid arteries into the brain, you can start to see an opening of the brain barrier. You know, you can start to see some leakage that suggests, you know, that some etoposite could cross the brain barrier. But now you have to look at the numbers, like what is the amount you have given? It's it's huge. So if you compare to what you would have in HPV vaccine, we're talking about almost 3,000 times the dose they have used to open the BBB. So this is already like one problem. You know, it's like you're going to have to use a mega dose of polysorbate 80 to have a chance to open the brain barrier. The second problem is like if you want to bring the slides, and I hope that we have like some chemists in the audience that we really appreciate, is... The structures, you know, so one of the problems you have with like polysorbate is basically um, you have ester groups, you know, so you have um, chemical groups that are fused that makes the compounds very easy to um, to like dissolve, you know, it's like basically an emulsifier. It helps to dissolve fat into like, into like water, you know, and the problem with like this like um, polysorbate is, is that you have this ester groups and these ester groups are very good target for enzyme called esteries. And that's a problem we have found, you know, uh, that here I have like the 1999 papers that you know, I, mean, I think show you on the slides. They have looked on what's happened to polysorbate 80s in the blood. So upon injection by IV. So directly in the vein, what's, what's happened? How long does it stay? And the results were not very good. If you think about uh, half-life, so this is like how we like quantify how long a drug takes into your bodies and half of it is gone. The half-life of it was very small. You know, it was about less than, I mean, like, uh, it was less than like five minutes. If I'm correct, and I have to go back, I mean, because I have to see my slides, but we consider like in pharmacokinetics that to have a drug to be completely clear from your bodies, it takes about four half-lives, you know? That means like within one hour of injection, they couldn't even find any more of the compound in the blood. So here you can see, you know, that you have now two major issues. You have to have a huge dose and you have a drug that is very, very unstable. That means it like, breaks down very, very easily. So to make it open the BB is like very, very unlikely. You know, I mean, like, unless you give it at very close proximity at, at megadose, it's very unlikely. And if we could, and if it happened indeed, we would have like very serious uh, consequences. Because one thing that happens if you like open up the brain barrier too much, you're gonna have now this uncontrolled entry of uh, solutes, electrolytes into the brain, 
And this is going to create a huge pressure in your brain. And also, you're going to have like a huge fluid buildup. And because you have a skull that is like very solid, there is no space to expect, you know? So when you hurt yourself, you get, you know, you get the swelling, it becomes red, hot, and it like become like swollen because you have space to like, you know, like expand it. But in the brain, there is no space. And basically what's happening is like this, like um, water pressure will like crush your brain tissues. And this is something that is really important when you have someone that have like a trauma, let's say they fall from a bike or they get something that hits the, the head, is whenever they start to like show weird signs, like, you know, they feel very tired, they feel they want to throw up, they are like dizzy and like lost consciousness. This is why you have to rush to the ER because we want to be sure there is no brain swelling to occur, you know? So if vaccine was indeed causing the opinion of BMBB, we would have like cases of brain swelling all over the place, you know, like having the ER flooded with patients coming within ah. 24 hours, you know, like and having like, you know, um, babies are having like a lot of like brain swelling and, and like having the ER like uh, surround, uh, overwhelmed by, by, by parents. Wow. So there's literally no way that it could open the blood-brain barrier because the other symptoms we would recognize very quickly in the population. Exactly. And exactly. it's not even yes. in all vaccines, nor mm -hmm. in the ones that it's in, is it in nearly a sufficient dose to ever cause anything close to that. Exactly, yes. And this is something, you know, I think is like a very um, important misconception I see in the public is like the, the, the fact that, you know, you need to have a certain dose. You know, one thing that we... No, we learn as pharmacology, the first thing we learn is about the dogma of Paracelsus. So Paracelsus was an alchemist back in the Middle Age, and we consider what we call the father of pharmacology. He has he was 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 living at near uh, Wolfsburg, like in West Germany, uh, Southwest Germany, and he made an action that is that until now used in our field. Is that basically he stated that there is no substance that is no poison. Every substance is a poison, and the dose, and an individual makes the substance a poison. So virtually right. everything you have out there, you know, we're surrounded by potential poisons. And what really matters is like how much of it you take, you know, is how much of this poison you're gonna ingest or you're gonna inject, regardless of the route, is basically how much you're gonna get exposed. And even like oxygen, we know is like, a, we need it if we, if we, let's say, we uh, stop the supply of oxygen, you will die within minutes from uh, from like uh, major cerebral damage. Now, if I give you too much of oxygen, you're gonna have what we call an oxidative stress. You're gonna have a hyperoxia ongoing. You like basically kill your neurons by oxidative stress. So it's really about finding the right balance of something. You know, you want to have enough of it, mm. but not not too much. You know, right? Something right in the middle. So exactly. So Someone mentioned in the comments that um, you like talking about this person, so I'll bring it up. What do you think about Dr. Christopher Exley, and what is his research on, and um, what's the yes. story there? Because I've heard a little bit about it. Yes. So this is an interesting story about uh, Christopher Exley. You know, now I, I got to try to be like the most neutral and objective I can. So Dr. Exley has, for some reason, have been... Uh, interested on like have a, I would say I would say obsessive um, fixation on aluminium on Alzheimer's and this has come back you know to back in the 80s you know at the time we didn't know exactly what was causing Alzheimer's we knew that what was Alzheimer's you know you have like the sign of like, dementia and we know we have like some buildup of of proteins in the brain we called amyloid beta but we didn't know what was the cause of it. You know, we know we have like this like amyloid plague, but we didn't know exactly what was COVID me. And what was interesting was back in the days, like in the 70s, you know, one thing we used to give to patients was what we called aluminum phosphate binders, you know? So um, imagine you have your kidneys are not working anymore. So you have to go to like do like we call like hemodialysis, you know, the machine where you have to clean up your blood from, from toxins. And one of the problems that patients on hemodialysis have, they have a buildup of phosphate in their bodies, not in the blood. And one way you can try to reduce this buildup in the body is to try to sequestrate or block any entry from your food. And so what they were given to this patient was aluminum phosphate uh, binders that was given, I call it by the tongue, but it was more like grams every day to help reduce the 
the uptake of phosphate. The problem is like, you know, that um, it was a huge amount of aluminum. Of, of course, you're gonna have a fraction of it will cross the um, gastrointestinal tract or the GI tract and end up in the circulations. So this patient had about five times to 10 times the normal level of aluminum in blood we have, and this was going for years. And so some of the patients started to develop signs of dementia and they were not sure about why, but they called it like, uh, so they called it dialysis uh, dementia or dialysis encephalopathy. And then they concluded that this very high level of aluminum that was like in the blood for years was maybe a cause. And I think for some reason, like Dr. Exley have been try hard to find evidence that aluminum cause uh, Alzheimer's. And, and even after this, not after we have removed the aluminum phosphate binders, this case went down and it was gone. The only thing was still saying was the normal Alzheimer's, but until now there's no evidence that aluminum will like trigger, let's say the formation of like A-beta peptides or trigger a protein that you call like tau that is an important protein involved in Alzheimer's disease that is not involved. But yet, you know, it seems that like he has like this kind of like pathological fixations in science. You know, when you try something and it doesn't work and your literature, literature is not showing what you expect, at some point you kind of like have to give up and say that, well, it's not right. in work. And this is That's what I say to science. my Exactly, yes. You know, as a machine, you try three, four times. If your thing is not going nowhere, it's going nowhere. You know, so it's time to right. drop it and move on to something else. Which could be a contribution in and of itself if you actually drop it. You say, oh, look, there's nothing here, you know, that whole thing. So exactly, actually, yes. There's some good research here as well. Um, I wonder if you've seen this. So this is about aluminum and infants. So let's see if mm -hmm. we can get this. Um... Here, yes. If you can bring it up big screen, yes, because it's very... Very like, small. Let's very small, yes. No. This was the Isley study. So this was... um. Here it is. Okay, updated aluminum pharma pharmacokinetics following ah, infant yes. exposures to diet and vaccination. So what this shows is that infants were given vaccines with aluminum, and compared to ones that weren't, they found no increased amount of aluminum circulating in the blood bloodstream that was mm -hmm. even observable. So if yeah. aluminum, you know, if it passes the, if it's injected, it can't go anywhere. There's not, there's no measurable amount because it's such a small level. Yes. So does does Isley's research relate to the mic the macrophages and aluminum piggybacking on them to enter the blood? And, and you know, I mean, like I would say, like this, like whole macrophages study is uh, is um, firstly like deeply flawed. And the problem is like you know, it's it's so circumvented that it makes it near impossible. And let me explain to you why. You know, first thing that um, uh, I would say it is like we know about you know that aluminum. You need to have a free fraction of it to be to be toxic. You know the AL free plus. So if you go back to chemistry handbooks, you know that aluminum in like nature is like present as the ion. You know it's like basically AL free plus. So like it's like in free electrons on the outer shells, and this is the one that is like biologically active. You know now what you have is gonna have in nature is gonna be present in different type of salt. You know depending on the salt, is like the table salt you use. You know like in the in your, um, in your, let's say, when you want to do pasta, you have it as a solid rock, but over time you can see that the salt is getting dissolved and like become now electrolytes on part of the solution. So this is the same thing we have with aluminum from vaccine and from food. We're gonna have present as AL3+. The one we give in vaccines are very slow dissolving salt, you know? And this is where you can see um, there is like, um, um, this is like well-known, you know, we know like aluminum, Hydroxide, for example, has a very weird way to dissolve and becomes different type of salt, but at the end, you got a formula free plus. But it's very, very slowly solved. And um, that makes, you know, in favor of having a relatively safety, because if you really have, like, you know, have a drip, if you drop a, a drop of, like, I don't know, a bleach into a huge Olympic swimming pools, the chance of having, like, you know, the concentration of chlorine in your pool Ah. No change gonna be almost zero. You know, it's gonna right. be so small that even your like detection measures not gonna be able to catch it. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that that links back to the the Makita study we just looked at, and that also exactly. relates to the macrophages and 
and this all relates to the study where they connected it with Alzheimer's you were mentioning earlier, which increased mm -hmm. deposits that they thought they yeah. found that were related, which there's no way, like we expressed, that vaccines could have led to any of that. Yeah, what yeah. was the reason for the buildup again? Why was all that aluminum there? Um, I, this is like, you know, I mean, I would say this is like a, a normal process. You know, like when you have like, you know, like, um, like I said, we have like, aluminum is like the third element on Earth. You know, it's like really present. It's ah. much more present than carbon. You think about carbon. Carbon is everything about like lives, you know, like living organisms. We are all made of carbon. And carbon is only, I think, if I remember well from the handbook of chemistry, is about number seven or number eight in terms of like, um, I would say prevalence as an element in on Earth crust. Aluminum is third. That means we're like basically oh. drowned and like surrounded by aluminum in a, such a higher level than we can think. And so as a evolution, we found a way to like deal with aluminum. You know, we have find a way to deal with aluminum. Now we have aluminum in our food, in our water, in our respiratory. So we have exposure every day from it. And the amount of aluminum we have entering the brain is very, very small, you know? But one of the problem is like, once you enter the brain, and this is not just aluminum, this is basically any metals. It can be iron, can be copper, it can be heavy metals like lead, mercury, is when they find a way in, they don't really find a way out that fast, you know? And it's also depending on what kind of form we are talking about. And so you have a normal, seems you have a normal deposition of aluminum in our brain over years that seems not to have a problem. And actually try to look at differences in terms of like Alzheimer's patients. So you have been able to get, he had like about like 60 brains from like control patients, that patients didn't have any sign of like uh, neurological disease when they died. And he was able to quantify the amount of aluminum. So there is some aluminum in the brain in the age. Uh, if you try to like look at if there's like age difference, it wasn't that clear because it was like very old brain, like 65 years old and older. So it was kind of like old thing. But when we compare like Alzheimer's to like controls, there wasn't difference. You know, the levels ah, were not right. different. Yeah. So, so it couldn't have been contributing to Alzheimer's because it was the exactly, same level yes, as yeah. non-symptomatic. Exactly, yes, yes. Without Alzheimer's. Absolutely, yes. And then the, the issue about macrophages is like, this is like, you know, it's like a multi-point issues. First, that me, uh, they, I mean, this is what, uh, for example, like Romain Girardi said about uh, macrophages. He said that macrophages come to the uh, injection sites, gobble up aluminum. That makes sense. You know, we have like here the first part of like immunization process. We're going to have here the first uh, step of like having the immune reactions. But then he said that by some way, these macrophages are able to go back to the lymph nodes and then from lymph nodes, like travel to the systemic circulation, so our bodies, and find a way up to our brain and cross our brain by and enter our brains. And this is like, you know, like uh, based on my colleagues that are like, you know, like seasoned neuromusicians that understand immunology at the brain, this is not happening. I mean, right. you, you, the brain is a very interesting. Um, structure. This is like a, the brain is basically in, in normal time. It has no immune cells in it. So a normal brain does, doesn't have immune cells. The only cells we have are called macroglia. And they're here just to kind of do the cleanup. You know, they're like janitors. They be sure that the cells are cleaned up. But in normal time, we don't see macrophages. We don't see lymphocytes inside the brain. The only time ah. they come, well, the only time they come in is when you have two conditions. Either you have a damage, so we called damage associated molecular patterns, or you have a microbe that found its way into the brain on certain infections. So this will trigger the macroglia cells to become active and they're gonna be running around like saying, well, alert, well, alert. we have we have damage here, you know, we need help. And this will like, send a signal to the brain buyer. The brain buyer will like start to put some anchors on the surface that we call activations, you know? So we have, we have a series of different addition molecules that are here gonna be like anchors, you know? So now the human cells can see that there are some anchors on the BBB, and now they can slip through the brain barrier because they need to have this anchorage protein on the surface to be an, enter the BBB. In normal time, we don't have them, you know? So there's right. no way for the human cells to enter. But when you have the endothelial cells activated, this is where you're gonna have the human cells, find a way to enter the brain and like start now a human reactions. 
So this is again bring the second problem. It's like, okay, if this macrophage has found a way to go into the brain, they need to have we need to have information first. And how this happens, I don't know. And the data they have provided is not is not conclusive. No, it's not um, conclusive enough because they have used a mouse that is known to have a chronic inflammation. So the mouse is already have immunological issues. It's like overactive, overactive immune system. So it's not exactly representing what we know in real life, you know, like in normal patients. Right. And, so and finally, where the, the mice problem comes in, where exactly, they yes, the yes. human blood-brain barrier. Exactly, yes. And this is something, you know, we have, I mean, um, is like, is also like omitted by the fact we have that Aluminium find a way to enter the brain barrier that is not requires macrophages, you know? So you look at the work of like Robert Giocali, have found that you have transferrins is basically a protein that, that transport iron in our bodies, have a way to deliver um, this into our brain via receptors called transferrin receptors. And aluminum finds a way to piggyback on the transferrin. You know, it can like try to pick a seat in like, like a musical chair. Think about a musical chair between ions, atoms, and uh, aluminum. So aluminum can find a fit and like pick a seat from, that will be like for iron, and this way enter the brain. And this is like the main route of, we know about, you know, for like aluminum into the brain is like via transferring receptor mediated transcytosis. So awesome. now this is, wow. like, yeah. This so is yes, we, we, we know, we know, we know quite, I mean, we know quite well about how aluminum enters the brain membrane. So this is why, you know, it makes, it makes no sense. Even like later, I mean, like very, um, very recently, like uh, Karen Weiser has been re, I would say, redesigning and like going back to all this work on like by uh, Flavin and colleagues and Mitkus to like really kind of like having a final say on what's going on really. And she found that the amount of aluminum in the brain after injecting uh, uh, aluminum adjuvants at the dose that was about the same, if not higher than what we give to babies, she couldn't find any changes in the plasma level for 80 days. So it's quite wow. a long time, you know, like one dose, she couldn't find any change in the in the amount in the circulating the blood. Um, she couldn't find uh, any amount crossing the brain that was compared to like saline. So they have a saline group and she couldn't see difference. And even right. uh, Karen Weiser said, you know, that if this thing, if this macrophage story is, is indeed true, it's really a very minor route of entry for the aluminum. Right, and aluminum's everywhere. So it's, yeah. like you said, it's the third most common metal. And so we're getting it more through our air, through our food, through breast milk, you know, just breathing is giving exactly, us more aluminum yes. than yeah. any vaccine will. So then, but then there's the argument that injection is different than ingestion, right? But the example you just cited was an injection study. Exactly, yes. More in the vaccine, literally injected and they did not find a difference so yeah exactly that yes pretty much proves the point and debunks the myths but then again it's not necessarily that easy because scientific evidence can it, mm -hmm. it, it's in a format where it's not always socially compelling which is why i like talking about it on platforms like this and exactly you know, yes. we did in some of the wiggle room there so exactly I don't yes. take up all of your time so let's let's get a summary here um the summary for me is vaccines don't enter the blood-brain barrier or cause it to open. That's what I've surmounted from this. So mm -hmm. would you like to kind of give a quick summary for, you know, what you think we pretty much talked about? Yes. So, I mean... Um, Can't pick mine, though. Yeah. <laughs> You're good. You're good. Okay, Go okay I'm good. Yes. No worries. Yes. So, no, yes, I was so just think, good. Yes. Um, what I can say, you know, Matt... Um, so far, there is no evidence that vaccine induce uh, disruption of the barrier. We have several studies that look at the different ingredients and show that there is no major difference, so there is no concern, you know, and that until now, I mean, like, there is no evidence that, you know, like vaccine opens the BBB or even like particles like of vaccines, like even like viral particles, like, for example, measles virus, cause the BBB in normal patients. But we're still like, you know, we have, we have still like to look for evidence. So far, I didn't find any paper that have found that, you know, like vaccine cause harm to the brain membrane. Oh, that's a good point. So some of these diseases that vaccines prevent can open the blood brain barrier and cause damage, like encephalitis from measles, right? Exactly. Yeah. And yes. actually, so if you're worried about opening the blood brain barrier, 
you need to get a vaccine to stop that from happening. <laughs> exactly. Right? Yes. Exactly. The yes. opposite of what people are thinking yeah. then. And this wow. is like you know, yes. And this is something about measles, you know, that I found is like the most pernicious things. It finds its way to like get into the into the brain very silently, like stealthy, like a ninja, and then it stay quiet for for years, and then suddenly it pops back. And this is like, I mean, it's really traumatic because you have a child, you know, that had, let's say, measles when he was one or two, you know, he, he survived, he went through like the measles phase. And then suddenly at age of eight, nine, he started to complain about headache and boom, he started to become uh, non-active non anymore, you know. He becomes deeply, deeply like lethargic. He doesn't uh, answer anymore to stimulus. Like he enters into like a strong comatose. This is like uh, SSP is a very... Uh, yeah. CV on fatal conditions, you know, that nothing will like, like uh, there is no warning sign, you know, it will come like this. And this is what, as a parent, really like, scares me, you know, to think about that one day my son, my daughter, like, that was like suddenly healthy, suddenly like becomes, you know, like um, completely on like comatose situations. Right. And that, that can happen from some of these vaccine preventable diseases. So it's, it's just exactly so interesting that. that People are afraid that the vaccine will cause this when not getting the vaccine poses you the most risk at these complications. So I got to say, thank you so much for coming. You're on welcome. You, you're welcome. You it really was really know what Yeah, you really know what you're talking about. I'm hoping that we can discuss the we can continue the discussion in vaccine talk. So oh, this yes, is normally where yes. we continue all of our discussions. If anyone wants to find it real quick, it just type in vaccinetalk.org. It'll take you right to the group. And um Search straight to the point, and uh, all our sources and evidence will be there. We'll include the slides if that's cool, or is that property of the university? No, it's it's mine. You know, it's my property, so you can go awesome. ahead. And I have the sources. Yes. So you Great. are you are more welcome to share that publicly. Great, cool. So everyone, come join us in Vaccine Talk for a discussion. And if you want to find the show, you can visit us at our website, straighttothepointshow.com, or just the abbreviation stdpshow.com. YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, all that stuff. I think YouTube's best because you have the video format. But, yep, go ahead and follow the show and see us in Vaccine Talk, and we will continue the discussion there. So thanks, everyone, for joining, guys. That was Thank a great you. discussion. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Straight to the Point. I can certainly say I learned a lot myself. You can find the transcripts, PowerPoint slides, and video format of this episode at straighttothepointshow.com or sttpshow.com, or on our YouTube channel, Straight to the Point, which is linked on our website. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you for the next episode of Straight to the Point.